This is the Singer's Tension Podcast, the podcast by singers for singers. Okay, so I'm here today with Alyssa Curdo, who is an amazing, beautiful performer of musical theater. I was trained in opera at the University of Toronto and University of Ottawa, and in the last few years has worked professionally in musical theater in Toronto, Canada. So welcome, Alyssa, to the Singer's Tension podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to kind of dive into the operatic world versus the musical theater world. So versatility as a performer cannot be undervalued. The more versatile you are as a singer, actor, performer, the more opportunities you have for employment and training for career and opera. You hear this all the time, branch out, learn how to do musical theater and opera. There isn't enough opera opportunity in Canada to just hold out for the big roles and make a living. You hear this all the time. And certainly singing opera is a lifetime endeavor. It's equatable to an Olympic athlete. And Mm -hmm. I think that perhaps classical singers can be naive in their assumption that opera is the more challenging art form, which I don't necessarily believe is true. I mean, if you look at musical theater, it demands acting skills that are as nuanced as stage actors, which sometimes can be overlooked in opera, where Mm -hmm. the weight of the importance falls heavily on the voice. And then again, in musical theater, belting is very different from opera and its positioning in your resonance spaces, which also requires practice to build endurance to do this night after night after night, something that opera singers don't normally have, you know, 60 performances in a row. Mm-hmm. And where opera must be heard over large orchestras and musical theater is miked. And so performers can play with intensity, emotion and color in completely different ways. So I want to know, Alyssa, what, what do you perceive instantly as the biggest difference between a musical theater form and operatic theater form? And tell us a little bit about your journey of learning the two styles. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult to really just pinpoint one major difference because, I mean, both art forms are really so beautiful and they have their own, you know, unique uh elements to them but i think you know for me the the main difference and why i i love musical theater i have to say more than i did opera uh is just the the versatility within the art form itself you know you have like musicals that are based on pop music and musicals that are based in more classical technique and musicals that are based in rock and musical, like all genres of music are pretty much represented in, in musical theater. And they all require uh, different, different style and different technique and, and different thought into what you're performing. Um, I think too, the, the biggest difference that I found similar to what you were mentioning is, is the acting aspect of it too, because it's not that you don't have to act in opera. We know, we know that that's, not the case, even though that might have been maybe the performance practice like of the olden times. It's definitely not the the current trend. But you know, you have actual scene work in musical theater, and there's you know some really heavy topics that they talk about. But there's also you know shows and characters that are are based in these like 
uh, like more classic acting styles. Like you have to know clown technique for some of them. You have to know, um, you know, different Lecoq theories or what all of those, those things that you really don't get to dive into as much in your study of acting as an opera singer, or at least they ha I didn't in my experience. So for, for me, um, like growing up, I gravitated to musical theater because it was what was the most accessible to me. Um, and I had, you know, friends that we would listen to show tunes together, we would dive into different musicals. And so I didn't really actually get exposed to opera until I started training. Um, and I, I came in being like, I'm going to be the best pop singer in the world. And my vocal teacher was like, let's take a step back and make sure that you don't ruin your voice in the process of that journey. And so we started working on more classical pieces and, and I learned the classical technique and I, I found that I did have a, a, a lot of success with that and I got enjoyment out of that. And I, I will always say that my, my classical training is really what led me to my belt. And so I almost simultaneously studied both styles and got to figure out the differences between them. And there are some that are subtle and there are some that are very obvious. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I, I think that that really led to my sort of double life that I ended up leading in school. I remember because we did our master's degrees together and I remember watching a clip of you singing musical theater from like years before when you were just a wee baby and <laughs> you were already so good. Like it, it just was a style that fit you. And I think what is sad about opera is that when you go to university for it, it's not built into, at least not the Canadian universities in the programs to have acting training. Mm. Um, when I was in my undergrad, I specifically had to seek out those classes as electives and in some cases take on a heavier course load so that I could have those classes because I thought it was a crucial part and I wasn't seeing a lot of people around me really putting the emphasis on the acting, which never made sense to me because it's a story. But yeah. then in musical theater, obviously you're being trained in acting and how to do transferences and pulling on your emotions. But in opera, you look at the students and they're on this trajectory of how do I build the voice, the voice, the voice, the voice. Mm -hmm. But the most amazing opera singers, like you think of... Anna Trebko naturally was such a great actress, but Callis too. Oh yeah, Callis too. And Sandra Rabnowski trained mm -hmm. in acting as well, and she's one of the greatest singers of our generation. So to me, this shouldn't be a difference between the two styles, and yet it still is, and it's something that I know the opera community today is trying to push against and put more of an emphasis on acting by sending young singers to summer programs where there is acting training and body movement training, but that's actually quite a recent development. Yeah, I remember in our, uh, in our master's degrees, like we, we did have a couple very, very basic acting classes that, I mean, they weren't, they weren't even really separate classes. It was just when you were doing the opera within the context of the degree, there would be like maybe one or two rehearsals where we would be working on a scene as, from just an acting standpoint without singing. And that was pretty much all that it was, which relies really heavily on your, you know, actor's instincts, quote unquote, but you don't always have those, especially if you've been really conditioned to this sort of unfortunate, um, what's the right word? Unfortunate, just 
attitude of like when you're in a classical setting, you have to be rigid by the piano just in that crook and you don't move and you just keep everything really still. So it's very difficult to go from that to and all of a sudden, whatever your impulses are, you should do them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's <laughs> yeah. a little bit unreasonable. I think that some of the things we expect the young singers to just naturally be comfortable with go from a very rigid concert setting to now you're in an opera and all of a sudden you have to move and make choices and do blocking and you just need to figure it out because you have nothing there really to guide you or to tell you what you should be doing. Yes and especially as young singers when you're in that world of classical music everything is either right or it's wrong and it's going to be wrong 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 for most of your Mm -hmm. life unless you're one of these very (laughs) few people that woke up and after four years of university, you know, they're singing at the med. It's, that's not the norm. That's a very rare Mm. case. And so you, as a person trying to build your voice, if it's wrong, 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 you become rigid because you're so focused on just doing the right thing. And that's also why a lot of classical singers get into a space where they, they're like, wow, I didn't really love singing again until I was out of school. Because when you don't have people Mm -hmm. telling you it's wrong all the time, you open yourself up to play more and you never really feel ready to perform and put yourself out there in classical music because you always think it's wrong and you see how much farther you have to go in comparison to, you know, those people on the big stages and in musical theater, it's just more permission to make weird choices. 100%. And I was just going to say, like, I think that might actually be the biggest difference that I've noticed is that the culture and the environment is make crack a note, you know, like sound terrible, do the stupidest thing and go all the way and make it big and we will pull you back. And that is the, the attitude. It's just like, we would rather you make a mistake than not try. Yeah. And your technique lessons are never, you know, these are all like, there's that word, that buzzword that I mean, that I always got the, you know, potential, potential, you have potential, you have potential. That's not the attitude in musical theater. It's yes, I mean, they recognize talent and they, they let you know when you need to work on something further. But the attitude is more like you are talented, let's take you further. Not you have the potential to be talented. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially if you are in the classical world and you're starting to perform, it's so important to have a really good teacher that not only is helping you to improve as a singer, but understands how to communicate with you, where they hear your voice now, what the path looks like ahead for you. So that when you go in and you perform or you practice something in front of an, a coach or a conductor and they say, oh, I, I don't think that that's good for your voice, the way you're singing that you feel empowered to say, actually, my teacher and I know that this is the right path. This is how I'm going to sing it for now. Uh, It's the choice Mm -hmm. that I'm making. And to be confident in that choice. I remember when I was doing Onyegin with Nuova in one of the rehearsals, that it's a very low role. And so my teacher and I had been listening to some incredible singers from, you know, early eras and how when they went to a really low note, they really got quite chesty about it before it went to a high note, as if they were mm-hmm. anchoring it down so that it didn't come into their throat. So I made the choice to sing it like this. And I remember the voice teacher in the room and the conductor 
were like not expecting this chest and actually were legitimately concerned for my voice when we took a pause. They said, no, 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 it's, it's way too much chest. But looking back on it now, it was a few years ago, it was 100% the right way to do it for me at the time. It felt healthy, but I, I didn't feel empowered to say that's right for me because when people are telling you it's mm. wrong and they're the ones that have the careers and, and are much farther ahead in their careers than you, you just feel like you should listen, but you know 100%. your body, you know your body. So there needs to be a fine balance and that's hard to find but it seems even more important in opera, whereas musical theater, I feel like the conductor or director would just say, I don't know about that choice. Could we play with it? But you could justify mm -hmm. your choice and they would be open to it. A hundred percent. I mean, the, the, the conductor or music director to singer dynamic is also very different from musical theater to opera. In, mostly in that, I, I've, in my experience, you know, you're, conductor was always like God in opera. <laughs> Whatever they said was what it had to be. And a music director in musical theater is very focused on collaborating with you and going, going to you first, you know, deferring to you and your choices and what's comfortable for you and what's sustainable for you. Because again, you have to take into consideration that whatever your decisions you're making, you have to be able to do eight times a week for a year. Yeah. That's it. It's so true. So for you, when you think about the way opera feels in your body versus musical theater, what do you feel are the biggest technical differences there? Oh, that's a good question. It's hard to define because my theories on placement and, um, you know, register changes have, have sort of evolved over the years and they're different now than what they were when I was in school. But if I take myself back to trying to learn those two styles simultaneously, I mean, I would say the biggest, you know, technical and physical difference for me in my body was just that opera always felt uh, like I had to really lean in to the top of my range because those were the notes that I was the most successful in. Uh, again, because, you know, my, my voice, my instrument really likes to add chest. I, I feel very comfortable grounding myself in my chest resonance and it would come through pretty high for opera, you know, like I, I, I would say maybe even at a, like F4, G4, it would still be creeping in. And that was comfortable for me. I, I felt I needed to do that in order to get the note out in the best way. And as you said, you know, like that none of my teachers were very into that. So I would try to like force it into this opera sound uh, and keep it in my head voice as much as I could. But then those notes always felt like weaker. So if I had to qualify it, I think I would say like opera, you know, felt like my weaker side of my voice. <laughs> and musical theater feels so much just lower and so much more grounded in, in my body. Yeah. I understand the fear that a lot of classical teachers have of their students using too much chest more so from the perspective of if you are singing only using your chest resonance, it won't carry over the orchestra. Right. But I don't believe that it would hurt your sound. And I really didn't learn 
what, what a connection to my voice was until I worked with Michael Warren in New York and we worked on belting and lots of slides and then finding that connection through the chest voice and allowing things to, you know, there's lots of cracking, lots of weird noises, but basically figuring mm -hmm. out what does it mean to always feel like I'm singing from my body, even on those highest notes. So I understand the fear from uh, carrying over the orchestra way, but not from a hurting your voice way. And that's always kind of a, a tricky subject with opera singing teachers, but every voice is different. So if you got a voice and you were teaching them how to sing opera, but they had no connection to their chest and you started talking about placement in your um, nasal cavities and the resonance through your head, most likely they're going to try to place their sound there and use their throat because they don't have an anchor. But mm -hmm. that could work really well for someone who had a really big voice and it was sitting quite low, but they were just missing overtones. So I think right. just teaching these two styles in general, there needs to be like permission to play with both styles. There are a lot of crossover artists like we'll talk about. So obviously these people aren't hurting their operatic voice because they're singing musical theater. Right. Completely. And I mean, I think, you know, to be completely fair, I think a lot of the, the issues that I had with that stemmed from the fact that nobody really knew in the opera world what to do with my voice necessarily. Like, to, I mean, to put it in perspective, I, I was really quite often compared to Maria Callas in that my voice was weird. It just like didn't always sound pretty and conventionally operatic. And there were people who, you know, loved that and were like, oh, it's a unique sound. And then there were people who were like, mm, it sounds ugly. You should probably work on your technique more. And, you know, I had people saying, you're a mezzo, you're a color tour mezzo. And then other people being like, no, you're a lyric soprano. And so throughout my whole, you know, journey of training, I just never got to settle into any, anything. So I was just constantly you know, basing my opinion of myself on whoever I was talking to at the time and whoever I was being coached by at the time, because everybody had a different opinion. So I could never rely on, you just, you know, you lose your sense of self when everybody's telling you one person thinks you're great and the other person thinks you're crap. And you just have to kind of truck through and try to take what works and discard the rest, but you don't even know what's working because the next person you talk to doesn't think that it's working. So you have to discard that and try something else. And it was just a very uh, you know, it's just a very confusing time. And musical theater, I never had that issue because I think just naturally my instrument was right for it. Mm -hmm. Do you find that in general, there's just not as strict of a classification of your voice is this, so you can only sing this repertoire? Oh yes, a hundred percent. There's, there's no, like voice type is really hardly ever used. I mean, there are, if you see like a breakdown of uh, an audition, they'll say, you know, we want a, a mezzo belter or we want, or they'll say we want a soprano with a strong mix. Like it's, it really doesn't matter though. Cause if I see that and I know that I'm a singer with a strong mix, I can go for that role. They'll usually give uh, a note range. So they'll say something like we want E3 to E5. And if you have those notes, then you're good. And that's really all they care about. 
I know during your training as an opera singer, you also received comments on needing to be a certain size, look a certain way if you wanted to have a career. Was that an attitude you were surprised to find an opera where you kind of assumed it would be there based on what you knew about musical theater and opera in general? I, I honestly was surprised to see it in opera because, uh, I mean, again, I went into opera a lot because uh, I thought that that attitude would be different because I was a little bit scared. I had gone through, unfortunately, some you know eating disorder issues with my musical theater and TV and film pursuits. And so I, branching into opera, you know, I always had that image of, you know, not to be stereotypical, but like the, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. So it just, not that I expected that every opera singer was fat, but that I expected that body image didn't matter for that art form, that they were very much just concerned about the voice and at the in fact I had been told by different you know voice teachers and industry professionals at the time that I actually had a great look for opera because I was dark and I wasn't fat so um, yeah which I mean is, is laughable now because I should have known exactly how problematic that kind of a statement is but um, yeah at the time I was like oh great like they you know I can just be my look and be my vibe and my style and I'll, and it'll be fine and nobody will say anything to me and that ended up being very much not the case so I mean in musical like musical theater is no different unfortunately in that respect it's getting better now but I mean there's to be honest like it's it's actually probably worse in musical theater because you know you have roles that are specifically for people of larger sizes and most of the time they are, you know, the person who doesn't get love in the end or the person whose whole character arc is just the fact that they're bigger. And we poke fun at the fact that they're bigger and they make a lot of jokes about how much they eat and, you know, that kind of thing. And a lot of those storylines are, are disregarded now, but, uh, or, you know, modified in some way to make them a little bit more 2020, but, you know, it exists. And uh, you hardly ever see two love interests that aren't like Hollywood beautiful. So I would say it's, it's probably more at the forefront in musical theater, unfortunately. Mm. And we've seen recently across social media, a transparency of students expressing misogyny or favoritism, racism that they experienced or witnessed either while they were in school or while they were working in the industry. Is that something that's come up in your career path? Oh, I mean, how long is this podcast? <laughs> uh, I could I could probably write a memoir on that subject alone. But yes, I mean, the short answer is absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I went to University of Toronto for my undergrad, and I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that they are extremely traditional in their views. I'll use that as a kinder term. Um, but, you know, the environment there is very toxic with regards to that. Like, like I said, uh, those people that told me I would do great in opera because I'm darker, a lot of them were faculty at U of T. And I often found that I was fetishized for being a darker girl. And I, I like, I'm not a POC. I, I am Italian. So I am, you know, considered on the Caucasian side of things, but I have dark hair. I have dark features. I tan. Um, so I was kind of in that ambiguous look for ethnicity and that was 
not exploited, but it was definitely uh, cashed in on a few times in places that it probably shouldn't. Like I, I had been told, you know, like you'll make a great Chocho-san and you'll play Aida. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> I really shouldn't. I really shouldn't make great, you know, either of those roles respectively. Um, and, you know, the, the misogyny also was pretty rampant. Uh, and the favoritism. I mean, I, I pretty much right away was not a favorite uh, at U of T. I started off as a favorite um, because I had won a pretty prestigious scholarship. But even at the time, uh, my teacher was like, you know, you, you've got a halo on your head right now, so you better not make any mistakes. And uh, I made a huge mistake apparently by getting injured, um, which is another thing that we definitely don't talk about enough in the operatic world is that injuries happen. And it's not even necessarily a matter of if they'll happen, it's a matter of at what point in your career they will happen and how to navigate that when it does happen. And, you know, the, the attitude was very much that it's your, it's your teacher's fault or it's your fault. And for me, it was, oh, you're singing musical theater and pop, so that's how you got injured. When in reality, like, it was because I was overusing my voice, it was because I was making I was binging and purging it was an I mean it was a number of reasons none of which had to do with technique uh but unfortunately because of that I had to have a lot of accommodations made for me uh within my schooling and they were not very big fans of that and so from then on I kind of uh I had to keep this this big secret because I wasn't allowed to actually tell anybody that I was injured because if I did then I would be essentially committing career suicide and blacklisting myself forever because as my one teacher put it these people have long memories and they immediately assume that once you've been injured once that you are a singer that is not reliable and doesn't have reliable technique and that they can't trust you in a run because they don't know if your voice will you know crap out on you and uh you know which is extremely incorrect but this was the the sort of idea and the fear that i had so i wasn't allowed to actually tell anybody why i needed you know extra time or why my voice wasn't always you know at its best or why there were some days that i would come in with all air and why some days i didn't and it was it was difficult but um I went, I fell very far from being a favorite to the absolute not favorite of the school and I was not treated very nicely because of it. I think that's so important to know is that vocal injury is a thing and there is a profound sense of guilt if you are injured that you, your self-worth is tied up in your voice when you are an artist. And so if you injure it, you have this feeling of like, oh, something is wrong with me. I did this, it's my fault. Mm -hmm. And you're in a university setting then where your role models, your teachers are reinforcing that idea that, oh, you're damaged goods, that does so much damage to your mental health, not, not to your voice. I mean, they're not helping your voice by not being there for you to work through it and explore what your options are and what could you change, but to just make you feel like you're an outcast. And with singing any genre, it's really a journey of sound and your mental health is tied up in that journey. So I wonder, I mean, it's a, a far reach, but what if universities had a teacher or a coach available for musicians that could 
talk to them about where they're at in their mental health? Is it too much to ask that your voice teacher at a university institution not only is there to do new exercises with you and coach you on musicality, but also to check in with you every lesson and say, what's your relationship with music right now? What's your relationship with your voice? What do you think we could change? What do you need? I mean, if they're your teacher, they're your coach, right? Or you would want them to be and think we need to take a more holistic approach to teaching students. Absolutely. I mean, your teacher can become like a second parent to you in a lot of ways because you have this really personal relationship with them and you have to be vulnerable in front of them. Like you, you know, for a singer, like a teacher and a lesson environment is, is one of the most vulnerable places you will be other than the stage. Um, so, you know, to be able to actually level with a teacher and talk to them about things that are going on with your mental health like that is, is really priceless and, and absolutely necessary. And I mean, U of T absolutely had no resources available to eat like inside or outside of the faculty of music. They are notoriously bad for, uh, you know, the, the mental health of students and what's available to them. Like, I, I, I knew students and colleagues, not even in the classical arts program, but the, the jazz voice faculty that ended up leaving the school and having mental breakdowns because they weren't able to keep up with their work and there was no sympathy for them. They went to faculty, they tried to you know, reach out to whatever resources they had available to them, which really was nothing. And we're just told, well, you better suck it up. And uh, if you can't cut it in this kind of environment, you're not going to make it in the real world. So you might as well go. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the attitude of it, which is, uh, you know, awful. <laughs> yeah. And you're certainly not alone in having that experience. I've heard from many singers that have gone to U of T, yes, but other universities where they weren't the favorite and they had a horrendous experience that made them not want to continue singing. And favoritism is a tricky topic because on one hand, I do think it is kind of a preview to the realities of the industry. No, I don't mm -hmm. agree with that. Of course not. It's awful. But just like actors, um, musical theater, opera, anything, there is favoritism. And there's a lot of who do you know and who likes you. In my own experience, I was always a favorite. And I really caught the good end of the stick there because my close friends were not the favorites and I saw how difficult it was for them when their teacher didn't give them the love and support that they needed and meanwhile I was going into my lessons and my teacher was giving me all of that and made me feel like things were possible so if I didn't have that I know how detrimental it would have been to my mental health so I can only imagine what it was like for them. They had a completely different experience through university than I did. And if we got rid of favoritism, let's just say perfect world, and every student was given the same amount of opportunities where person A got the lead role this term, so person B gets it next term, that isn't really the reality of the industry. However, you are not in the industry yet. You are in an educational institution so don't you deserve to have equal opportunity to be trained in how to sing over an orchestra or how to work with other actors on stage in a lead role? And that's why it's kind of a delicate line in this conversation, because some people would say, well, they're just not ready as a performer. Like they're not going to be able to do the role, but it's an educational institution. Yes. 
I agree. I, and I, I, my personal opinion is that we should be leaning into the education side of it because at the end of the day, these people got accepted into a program. So obviously there's, there's talent and, and, you know, my favorite word potential in all of them. And, you know, we, they're paying to be there. <laughs> they're paying to be there. They're paying the same money as the other kid that is the quote unquote favorite. And yes, there's politics in, in the industry, but at the same time, you know, the reasons that somebody is a favorite in real life are not often the reasons that they are a favorite in school. Like the, one of the only reasons that I fell from favoritism other than my injury was the fact that I was very open about my love of musical theater. And I was judged extremely harshly for like, for wanting any, anything other than opera. Is that a reason to not give me a role? No. Is that a reason to not allow me to do any of the master classes that I'm entitled to as a student paying tuition? No but it was the case. And that's not, that's not something I've found in the industry. <laughs> Nobody judges me for having training in opera and musical theater now. Nobody doesn't give me a job over it. But you know, if I could go back and say, I think I, the main point is again, like you're, you're paying for an education, you're paying for the opportunities that are supposed to be afforded to you. And yes, you know, there's obviously an element of if you're ready versus if you're not ready, but like you said, ready is kind of a relative term because you don't have to be ready to do it in real life. You just have to be ready to do it in this educational setting. Yes. And then I think that speaks to an institutional problem where if the productions are being chosen ahead of even knowing who the students coming in are and then fitting the students into those roles, you're not really serving the students, you're serving the production. Whereas if you look at, these are the students we have, we want to give everyone equal opportunity, at least to the extent that they are physically able to without putting them in a position where they will injure themselves, right. then choose the productions and the opportunities based on where those students are at and go about it the other way. Right. I agree 100%. When you went out into the real world, what was the difference between opera auditions versus musical theater auditions for you? Well, I mean, for one, you don't have to pay for musical theater auditions, which was, you know, a huge thing. And I mean, again, I, I have very strong opinions on the audition process in opera versus musical theater, mainly that I, I find the opera system to be predatory in a way, because, you know, a lot of these summer programs or pay to sings or whatever you want to call them, they use that audition money to fund their own program. So in a sense, they they often use the people trying to make a career in this to keep the, the art form sustained. And I don't, I don't think that that's appropriate. I think, like I said, I think it's predatory. Um, but in terms of, aside from the money, you know, uh, a musical theater audition is very different than an opera audition, especially in that usually in an opera audition, they want you to sing something from the show that you're auditioning for. Usually they want you to sing the aria that you are of the character you are trying to book. Whereas in musical theater, that's sort of a faux pas. You really don't want to actually do any rep from the show. You want to pick something that's similar, that uh, shows uh, that you can do the style, that you can handle the genre of music, and that shows you off in your best. And then there's often, you know, you'll, you'll be asked to go to a callback in musical theater, like pretty much all the time unless you know you get cut at the initial audition and in that callback you'll always be with someone else running a scene together just so that they can see 
whose chemistry works better with other people. And I mean, you really don't find that, at least in my experience, I didn't find that in opera at all. So oftentimes, if you did book a job, you know, you'd be meeting your, your love interest for the first time at the first sing-through, uh, which is always a little bit like, ah! Whereas in musical theater, I think they do take more time to allow you to create those friendships uh, with people before you have to like go on stage and kiss them. <laughs> yeah, it's happened very rarely for me with opera, but sometimes they will do a table talk, which is always used with acting performances, stage acting, to talk through the motives of the characters, the main themes, the director's vision, but that, like I said, that's only been in rare cases for opera. And as you said, it's, hello, we're in love. Yeah. <laughs> so then your acting is really tested. Yep, yep. And in terms of attire between the two auditions, I know opera auditions, singers are kind of, uh, not business casual, maybe business casual is too light. It would be more like a cocktail party kind of a yeah time. yeah definitely more semi-formal uh much more formal than a musical theater audition usually in in theater like they want you to dress nice but I've definitely done auditions in jeans and it's it's not looked at with any sort of side eye um you just want to emulate the energy and the style of the character that you are auditioning for and in the case of a general audition you just want to go in looking bomb so whatever makes you feel the best is what you wear do you come across dance being necessary in a lot of these auditions or are you noticing things are more acting directed and so dances become less important? It definitely depends on the show. Uh, so, you know, if you're going for a show like Spring Awakening or what other ones aren't that dance heavy? I mean, honestly, even something like Beauty and the Beast or some of the Disney shows where the character that you are likely going to play isn't one of the big dance roles, then um, it's, it's not as important. I wouldn't say that it's, it's not still significant because e no matter what, unless it's a show that absolutely has no dancing in it whatsoever, you will do a dance call, which can just will vary in, you know, level of difficulty. It's basically like, can you pick up choreography and can you move with rhythm and do you look like a fool doing so? Um, you know, so I, I would say that dance is still something that you need to have, uh, but you don't have to be like Barishnikov by any means, especially if your hit is not major dance roles. For someone looking to start going to these auditions, where do you pull your listings from? How do you find out about them? My biggest source is honestly word of mouth. So I, I have a lot of friends that, that are also trying to make careers in the industry. And I mean, we don't have that kind of uh, competitive or catty nature. So if there's a call going out, a lot of people will be like, I'm going to it, you know, you should come. Um, or I'll, I'll peruse Facebook. There's lots of groups that uh, post for non-union calls. Um, but I mean, now that I am union, I, I do have an agent. So a lot of the stuff that I get asked to audition for does come through her. But I, I, oh, I do subscribe to the Equity E-Drive, which you do not have to be an Equity member to subscribe to. So it's definitely, it's something I recommend to everybody. Uh, and they, they put, they will, it's just an email list essentially that emails you every time there's a, an audition call or a job posting, anything arts related. Uh, and in the email, we'll have the entire breakdown of the casting call. We will tell you what you need to send in. 
who to send it to, who to address it to, all of the good stuff. So that's definitely been an invaluable resource for sure. So you just became a member of Equity, right? And what was that mm -hmm. process? When do you think it's a good time for a singer to consider joining? So, I mean, my, my story is a little bit unique with it because essentially what happened was I actually got this job through a video I had posted on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I, I had shared this video of me singing Someday from Hunchback, like the, the, a show clip and my old voice teacher had shared it on Facebook and I guess he knows the, the two directors at uh, Victoria Playhouse who watched the video and were like, we need to have this girl come in for an audition, which felt, you know, amazing for me because, you know, very rarely do you get opportunities like that, to be honest. So I went in and I did the audition and everything was great and they I had a really good time. They were lovely. They coached me through everything and and it was it was a lengthy audition. I would say that for an initial audition I was in there for like half an hour, which is is fairly long. Um but I left feeling really good and they called my voice teacher and were like, "You know, do you think she can handle like a full run?" and he was like, "She's done a lot of musical theater. I think she'll be fine." <laughs> Uh, so they gave me the job and it was my first equity house job that I had booked. So, I mean, equity is, is, uh, a little easier to get into than ACTRA, uh, which is the, the film union. So equity, you only need one credit to essentially be able to buy in. So when you get your equity credit, um, you have a choice. You can either hold off and just have a equity permit for the, length of the contract, which then, you know, goes away as soon as the contract is up. Um, and you can wait until your third equity credit by which point you have to join. But because you've been paying dues in your permits up to the third, you have no initiation fee or it's like next to nothing. Or you can go right in right away and pay the initiation fee, which is about just over a thousand dollars. So there's, uh, there's, kind of two schools of thought on whether you should wait or whether you shouldn't wait. Um, but because, you know, it had happened for me a little bit later in my career than, than some of, you know, my colleagues. And, and again, purely because I had taken that six year detour in opera, you know, so I wasn't that Sheridan grad who graduated at 21 and was working right away through all the networking that I had done at school. I really felt for me, you know, this is, I don't know when my next equity job is coming but I feel like having equity attached to my name and being a union member is going to get me into much more equity rooms than not being that. So I chose to just go in with the initiation fee. I paid it and I became a full member and I still am to this day. And then kind of right after that, I started getting called into audition for the other bigger houses like Port Hope and Drayton. Um, and again, I think it's because uh, I am a union member and I think that lends a lot of credibility to my name. And then I, I booked my next equity gig, which ended up being canceled due to COVID. But, you know, it, it started to snowball for sure. Yeah, I think it's such a personal choice. You have to be honest with yourself of where is your voice at and you as an artist and performer and also your finances. As soon as you are part of equity, you have to ask permission to take non-equity gigs, right? They are, yes, but they, they are very lenient with that. Like I, I have done some non-union work since joining and it has never been an issue. Oh, that's amazing. And a lot of your gigs were canceled this year because of COVID. Like what does that mm -hmm. look like for you with your career this year? 
Well, so, I mean, my, uh, you know, performance career is, is still very varied. Uh, so I have, you know, musical theater things on the go. I also sing with a cover band and we do a lot of corporate events and a lot of um, big festivals and those all got put on hold as well. Uh, so, I mean, I, I had some things lined up pretty much till the end of the year that all kind of got <laughs> washed away in one fell swoop. And what do you feel like your attitude as a performer that needs to practice is like, how are you going about practicing, even though there's nothing specific lined up in the future? Do you feel that weighs on you? You know what? I, I'm, I'm such a bad singer in this way that I, I'm not a huge, like I don't practice every day. Um, but I think for me, again, this is another major difference between musical theater and opera that in my personal journey, my musical theater technique and my knowledge of my instrument, my understanding of my instrument and my ability to control my own instrument is already pretty much where it needs to be. Like I pride myself on the fact that when it comes to musical theater and pop and rock and like all of those jazz, all of those genres, I can sing it all. And so when it comes to practicing, the practice comes more from figuring out how to, how to basically stretch myself into the best version of my voice and what like pushing the limits you know like doing the whole Elsa like test the limits and break through like just figuring out what how far can I take that before it I reach my limit yeah so I'm, I'm right now I'm, I'm practicing more on my inner ear so I'm you know I'm pr singing along with the radio and I'm riffing and I'm trying to make up my own riffs and I'm trying to get really good at hearing the notes between the notes and flexing that improvisatory style because those are the kinds of things that I practice now those are those are the kinds of things that I do to stretch right like so my my riffing capabilities they're pretty basic right now how can I make them better or you know how high can I take that belt tone before it, it becomes unnecessary or you know um what are what's my low range looking like right now what how many roles can I sing that are still really deep in the basement what a what can I explore that isn't something that someone would look at me and think I could sing. Yeah, I just like so much that the way you've described it is so playful. It's just a bunch of questions and thoughts of maybe I'll try this and maybe I'll try that and perhaps this could be something in the future, but not putting pressure on yourself that today I will hit this note. <laughs> yes, completely. <laughs> So in your career, whether it was through the opera training or musical theater, any of the teachers you've ever had, what's the best singing advice you've ever gotten? It's good. You're going to laugh because it's literally just sing it. <laughs> like <laughs> I find that, you know, when you're a cerebral technician, you tend to get really in your head about, you know, every minute detail of what you're doing. And especially when you're expecting that someone's going to say it's wrong. <laughs> so. I think I, I had such a bad internal headspace of like whatever I was putting out was going to be not liked by somebody. So I just had to focus on making everything perfect because I didn't want to have anybody say anything about it. And, you know, what you sacrifice when you do that is, is the story, is the communication, is expression, is creativity. So, you know, I had one teacher who was just you know, I won't use the exact words, but, you know, just 
insert expletive here, sing it. And what are you trying to say? And I think at one point he even said like, can you just act like a human being? Because I was definitely getting very robotic uh, in the way that I would approach things. And he was just like, what would you do if you were actually just saying that? Like, let's pretend that you didn't need to sing it. And you were just telling me what the heck would you do? What would you say? How would you say it? Sing it like that. And it was revolutionary for me because I had always had this sort of separation of acting while singing and acting, if that makes sense. Like there was definitely a divorce between like, this is my singing self and this is my acting self. And I hadn't, I didn't know that you could be both. And so once I figured that out, it made, I mean, I sang it so much better because I just didn't lean, I, I just didn't care. And I, I let myself go and I focused on communicating what I was supposed to be communicating with the song rather than just trying not to get told that something I was doing was wrong. I really believe that when, when you read music, perhaps you're at a disadvantage because you see the notes on the page and you see, oh, this is an interval of a 12th and thus I must prepare the body. Yeah. <laughs> ready. You know, you learn music note to note to note, playing it on the piano and you disassociate from what you're actually saying. So one exercise I always liked was to say, even if the sentence goes on for three or four pages, and which can happen in opera, to say it to yourself, the whole sentence, until it resonates with you and figure out what are your motivations here? What's your subtext? Can you play with thinking about that subtext while you're singing and just not think about the technique at all? What happens? And, and to make it, again, playful, to me, that's it doesn't make any sense to sing something and not have an idea of the story you're trying to tell and who the person is. But we do that. We learn the music. So we're like, I sing this perfectly now. And you lose sight of the person that is so supposed so to be singing it. Mm -hmm. Completely. So that's best advice. Now, yeah. have you ever given advice? I'm not saying it's bad advice, but advice that didn't work for you as a singer, because I always talk about how every teacher explains things differently. You need to find a teacher that you connect with how they're explaining it. And the best teachers always can look at your body and what you're doing and creates a process that works for you. But you're going to come across teachers that give you something that doesn't work. Totally. Um, okay, so something that really didn't work for me, this is going back into, again, opera training, but uh, I had a teacher, you know, who in her own rights was a wonderful singer, like, lovely. Um, but she had this, this idea, I think that she really, I mean, we talk about raising the palate and, and um, really opening up space in the back of the head and all those good things. But she, I think, would just take it to the extreme. Like, she kind of had that um, I don't know if you've ever seen this masterclass by Cecilia Bartoli, where she just talks about like forcibly lowering her larynx, where she, like, you can actually like see it moving down in this video, but she would kind of, I mean, it wasn't that exaggerated, but she was really trying to like make this cavern happen in the back, like regardless of a singer's physiology, like didn't matter what the anatomy, she just wanted like you better stretch girl and just like make it as, as much space between larynx and soft palate as possible. Uh, which, you know, had its advantages at the time because I was able to create this like huge, like big opera singer sound. But I realized after that I was like 18 
and I sounded like an old woman. Like I sounded like her. And, you know, she kind of had to have this magic effect on her, her students that they would stop sounding like young opera singers and they would sound like that, like, you know, I don't even know what the right, uh, you know, maybe like Franny at the end of her life, you know, like it would just, it would be like way, way exaggerated, sort of uh, probably more like what you think an opera singer sound like, sounds like in your head as someone who's never heard opera. And it's just so hard with singing because that might be the exact thing that someone needs to make them surreal amazing, but then for you, it, it didn't work. So it's, no. it's no. Just, I mean, I, I know, I know singers that worked with her that that works wonderfully for, and you know, they have, they just have different voices and different colors in mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have a low speaking voice, but you know, my singing voice is very Disney princess. It just is. And I, I have low notes too, but uh, when it comes to that, like operatic sound or the classical sound, like my higher notes are, are where I like to live. And I, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely had some heavy, heavy color when working with her for sure. And if someone is a newbie singer and they're looking for a teacher, it does come back to that idea of being confident in what your sensations are in your body. But at the beginning, you don't really know what you're supposed to be feeling and what your body is. So I think it's important to try different teachers, hear what they're saying, play with things, and also do some kind of body awareness where uh, whether it's Feldenkrais or yoga or Alexander Technique, just to pay attention to where am I feeling tension today versus four weeks ago? Do I think it's better? Is it more painful to sing? A great barometer is if it feels painful, it's probably not right. Yep, <laughs> but if it just feels kind of like a stretch, like, you know, if someone, if you're doing yoga and you really stretch something out, okay, that just might be something shifting. But if you're singing two lines and it feels like someone has their hand around your throat, most likely it's not working for you. Yep. <laughs> I'm just taking a guess. It's not yeah, working. Yeah, completely. And I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, I think that there could be so much more emphasis on on body awareness. And, and there's so many things that, you know, they don't even tell you when you start training, like, you know, just because of my experiences as a woman, like you, you don't even know, like there's, there's differences would have, depending on what's point in your cycle you're at will affect things in your voice and your, your tensions on any given day. And, and I remember teachers telling me, you know, you're, especially when I was younger and, and honestly, it's sort of leveled out now, but um, I would say that probably didn't even really happen until I was like 25 or 26. But they were like, you're going to have days where your voice just does not do what you want it to do. And there might be nothing you can do about that in the moment. You just have to try and navigate it, ride the wave and say it's going to be better tomorrow when my body isn't what it is today. And, and that was, you know, it's, it's, I think we need to give singers more permission to excuse themselves with that and like have compassion for themselves because you won't you you don't enter into every day at the exact same place you were the day before and you're not always in the same place physically that you were when you had that breakthrough in your lesson so if you can't always recreate it it's not even necessarily always your fault there's a million factors that could be playing into that and that speaks to the importance if you want to be a singer and an artist someone who uses their body for their profession you really do have to have this unprecedented commitment like an Olympic athlete where you watch, what am I eating? What's my routine? How much sleep am I getting? Did I stop doing stretching this week? 
you have to be a body detective and figure out what you need for your instrument and your lifestyle and your routine, and then make choices based on that. I know a lot of singers that um, are women that when their time of the month comes, they find it really heavy, really hard to sing in their, mm -hmm. in their throat, in their chords. And other singers are not affected by it at all. So if you weren't paying attention to your body, you're like, why do sometimes I just can't feel like I can sing? But you have no idea that actually yeah. it's related to your period. But it's actually a thing. You just so you, you have to pay attention. I think it's a good idea to keep a diary for like a few months and change up your routine every couple of weeks. Like, okay, now I'm going to try getting nine hours of sleep or now I'm going to try meditating 15 minutes before I practice and know what you're feeling, what that did for you. Nobody can answer those questions, but you. Yeah. And I mean, I always recommend that, you know, I think every, every singer and every, you know, anyone who plans to be on stage should have some sort of exercise regimen that they follow, especially if you're going to do musical theater. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like a, an instant key into your body. And I, I didn't even really know until I started getting more into fitness, exactly what I was missing on that awareness and how much I wasn't in tune with what was going on internally. Diet and exercise, if not just for the focus, you know, you're able to really be in the moment and focus in more on what you're doing. Plus energy, you don't need those naps anymore. And when you're singing, you're standing up, usually in one position, you're super hyper-focused. When you're on stage, you need to be malleable like the blob monster, you know? <laughs> you have to be able yeah. to do everything and anything with your body and sing in those positions. So when you're working out, especially yoga or if you're lifting weights but not too heavy, to pay attention to what your breath is doing. And can you do lip trills while you are in these different positions? Do you feel all of a sudden, oh, I'm sitting down and now my breath feels really stuck in my chest? That's a huge red flag. Obviously, something's happening when you sit down that's collapsing your apparatus. So you need to figure that out because when you go on stage, if you have this epic moment and the director says, you're really sad, you need to sit down and you can't sing it because you've only <laughs> ever sung standing up. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll always tell every singer to like sing, sing while you're on the treadmill because I mean, I mean, in musical theater, like, there are so many moments where you have to sing while doing these crazy dance moves. And, you know, there are some things that get pre-recorded, but it's never a solo. Like, it's only ever, we, you know, you sweeten tracks sometimes with pre-recording the chorus so it sounds fuller. But you, like, I, I mean, I, I've seen productions, like, the, there's a production uh, show called, well, a show, SpongeBob SquarePants, the musical, and he literally has to sing while climbing up this, like, apparatus. And at one point, he, like, sings this belts this high note while his abdomen is literally supporting him on like a monkey bar style like structure and he has to just like I, I think it's even something crazy it might even be like an A like it's it's insane I don't know how he trained for that but it's you know they ask a lot of you and your body especially in musical theater so it's it's something to keep in mind for sure he probably just trained by planking everywhere and singing high notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I think. Okay, last question. What is something you believe about the voice? Profoundly believe, doesn't have to be technique related, but speaks to you. I profoundly believe that singing is your birthright and that whether or not you feel that you can, you should because there is just something singing is what happens when you can no longer speak but you still need to vocally express 
I like that. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for joining me on the Singer's Tension podcast. It was such a pleasure. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) 